focused on notorious director Quentin Tarantino. He has 12 uh, directorial movies under his belt. But I don't know why you keep saying 12. It is not 12. It's basically it's basically 10 movies. Because two is only one. 10, but the Kill Bills are one. Sure. Yeah. This is very important because he's going to retire after only making 10 movies for some stupid reason that uh, boxers are only good for so long and making films is like boxing. Anyway, it doesn't make any sense because he was involved in Death Proof uh, and a whole bunch of other movies. But then, yeah, Kill Bill 1, Kill Bill 2, which count as one movie technically, but are two movies. So, yeah. It's not really 10, but it's 10. Sure. <clears throat> um, yeah, do you want to give like a, a bit of a backstory with him, I guess? Yeah, so Quentin Tarantino is uh, he's a really popular director, probably the most popular director of his generation. So he started, um, he's a guy from California, like he's from just outside L.A. or like, you know, not in the heart of the city, but he's in L.A., um, so he's always been obsessed with movies. His movies um, kind of helped jumpstart part of the uh, like American independent uh, movement in the early 90s. So alongside uh, people like Robert Rodriguez um, and Steven Soderbergh, who came a little before, um, they sort of founded a, a, a new type of independent movie. Um, which would obviously grow for him into bigger and bigger budgets. Um, his stuff is all very well known at this point. He's received tons of accolades. He's won Oscars, um, both for writing. As a as a director, his movies are completely unique to him. Like you can immediately tell they're his movies, both through his use of language and long bits of dialogue. Um, just in listening to him speak and also the fact that he's in several of his own movies, you get a sense of how he talks and that voice is present throughout all his films. Like it is oftentimes indistinguishable from something that he would be saying for what a character is saying instead. Um, hallmarks of his work include nonlinear narratives. So his movies are often not going to just be ABC events occurring. They'll jump around in time. Um, we'll get into that with each sort of specific movie, but um, there is excessive violence in every single film. There are often transgressive themes, be that violence against women, um, prolific use of racist language or just racial slurs. Um, yeah, I, I think that his uh, use his use of tension also is is definitely like his own style i would say like you when you're watching it you can clearly tell something bad is about to happen and then it does oftentimes yeah. in ways that catch you off guard and that you were not quite expecting but you knew something was going to happen if you've seen yeah. enough movies you can tell when when the the thing is about to snap or whatever yeah, suspense builds and almost always ends in dramatic, over-the-top violence. Um, he deals mostly in genre films, so he clearly loves the crime genre, which he's done repeatedly. Um, made a war movie, a couple of westerns. Um, the Kill Bill movies are martial arts movies. Um, and his main goal in working sort of in genre films rather than just making more generic uh, dramas which is someone of his stature as a director who's pretty much just given blank checks to make whatever he wants is rare. But he always tries to deliver on the genre. So he'll make sure that everything he views as being integral elements of these types of movies is present, while he also sort of deconstructs the genre throughout and then builds it back up in a way to sort of transcend it. Um, he's a really, really talented filmmaker and has chosen to make predominantly very schlocky movies that tend to be artful at best and at worst get a little masturbatory, uh, a little long. Those issues 
are a little more weighted towards his newer stuff, which feels like it probably could have required some editing down in a writer's room. But due to his immense popularity and success, um, he doesn't really need to edit it down because people love what he's doing. Yeah, he's he's someone that that people who are familiar with movies love and adore and people who are familiar with movies also will look look down their noses at as well uh mm-hmm. by saying he's he's a guy who's really popular but uh is kind of like sticky like he has his like sticks and he just does those well and it's not really film um it is how i would say like some some people feel about tarantino um yeah, I just wanted to comment that a lot of people enjoy his movies, um, and then there there are certainly camps out there who like. Well, actually, I didn't really enjoy that because of like one or two things in the movie that that throw them off, throw them for a loop. <clears throat> but he's definitely irreverent, um, in a lot of ways. When asked why something is in a movie, he will usually get very upset and not explain why and then turn the question back on to the interviewer, which is usually very funny. <laughs> yeah, there's that great, great interview of him after Kill Bill came out in like 2004 or something where he's repeatedly asked like, Quentin, why so much violence? Why are you doing this to us? And, you know, he'd done the, these interviews so frequently that you know, this lady asks, like, do they really need to be that violent? Why are you doing this? And he's just like, because it's fun, Jan. And he's just screaming, you know, he's just rocking back and forth, animated, like, no, no, we got to cut people up. There's got to be gunshots and blood. And, uh, I mean, I, I think he's right. His movies are a lot of fun. Um, yes. We'll get into some of the more controversial stuff, I think, later. I don't know that we'll necessarily delve into it uh, per movie. Um, most particularly his his endless use of the N-word, um, not only by many of his characters, but by him himself, um, is definitely, uh, people have some issues with that today. So we'll, we'll get into that stuff. But, um, yeah, yeah, he's, uh, just as a guy who, like, operates so heavily through like through pastiche and homage he's able to just blend them so well together with subtext where characters are basically not talking about the story anymore they're not talking about the plot they're just seemingly talking about nothing at random and that's where tarantino seems to build meaning from his movies is day-to-day interactions of characters that reveal something deeper about them and why they're doing what they're doing which is always the sign of a great screenwriter. Yeah, his yeah his dialogue is super enjoyable, punchy, and uh, realistic as well as wild. I would say, yeah. So uh, his first, uh, or at least the first movie that we're gonna focus on, uh, Reservoir Dogs, came out in 1992, mm-hmm. and it is. Um, I guess eight gangsters or eight, eight guys, and each of them has the name of a color. So there's like Mr. Blue, Mr. Yellow, I forget what the other ones, Mr. Green, Mr. Pink. Mr. Yeah, Mr. Brown, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Blue, Mr. Orange, and Mr. Pink. And then there's uh, Joe is the leader, and then his son is like nice guy, uh, Eddie. Yes. Yes. Uh, All-star cast. Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Steve Buscemi, uh, Michael Masden, Lawrence Tierney, uh, Chris Penn. Yeah. uh, The the cast in this movie is is pretty great. I like this movie. I enjoy it. Um, I think I liked it a lot more the first few times I watched it. It sort of lost its luster uh, the more times I've seen it, but especially it being his first um, movie as well as 
yeah, just the the combination that he puts in it is pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, it's one wonderfully written. Uh, it's a great great script. Um, the dialogue, like you said, is punchy. It flows really nicely. The story itself jumps all over the place. So, I mean, these guys commit a heist. They steal a bunch of diamonds, but you never see the heist. You see a little bit of the aftermath right after, um, but mostly it's just uh, some people in one room who are paranoid because they think that they got set up, and that's why their heist didn't go well. Um, and then things play out from there. Um Overall, I think I, I agree with you. Like it's it's one of those things where his directorial choices show flashes of brilliance and the movie is very iconic, like just a bunch of dudes in black suits with the sunglasses. Like there's something inherently cool about it. Uh, the musical choice helps with that, too. So just some combination of uh, his character work the actual pacing of dialogue, the costume design, his direction choices in the editing kind of made this like a cult hit immediately. Uh, and it's definitely only grown in popularity as time has gone on and has been endlessly copied and spoofed and uh, beloved. Yeah, as you mentioned, the iconic suits and the sunglasses, I forget where I was reading, this was a few years ago, I was talking about like Ray-Ban sales and how like Ray-Bans were like not on their way out, but they like weren't really sure where to go as a product line. And then after this movie and like obviously like other movies kind of similar to it, just the, the Wayfarer sunglasses just like took off from just like seeing these men in suits with guns being gangsters and walking around committing crimes and being cool looking covered in blood cheese and saying like just really wild shit yeah <laughs> slow-mo scenes of them walking in dirty alleys got gets gets the people going got them got the sales so yeah to this day uh, i think wayfarers owes a a huge <laughs> thank you to this movie and and obviously subsequent films um there's a really strong exemplar of juxtaposition in this uh movie as well that i just wanted to highlight like the the scene stuck in the middle with you is played over top of like a torture scene basically a brutal brutal scene yeah it's it's really brutal uh so if you haven't seen it i won't ruin it for you but uh yeah it's it's brutal which is absolutely tarantino style which is just it just comes right out of nowhere like it builds up towards it and then yeah he goes all in on it um what else was i gonna say oh the there is the scene where they're uh buscemi's on the ground and Kaitel is above him and they both have the guns like pointed at each other which is straight up ripped off of um what movie is that is it a John Woo film? Yeah, yeah. Uh, for a better tomorrow. Yeah, a better tomorrow. Yeah. I think that's the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crazy Mexican standoff at the end. Yeah. Um. So we we didn't mention this, but Tarantino is like a super, uh, super into like samurai films, and. I would say specifically, um, well, I, I wouldn't cite specific movies, but he he clearly like I don't want to say did his homework, but he he is a very much he's a director that is really into cinema and has he's a noted cinephile. Basically, like has a running history of scenes in his head, the movies that they come from, and directors, and could like cite them as a as a. Um, yeah, an encyclopedia of film. Which he steals from wholesale. Yes, yes. Um, pretty uh, similarly to Wes Anderson. Yes. Whether it's conscious or unconscious um, is kind of, yeah, we don't really know. but Conscious. No, he's consciously stealing them. Yeah, I wanted to mention that not necessarily as a knock on him, but because he has consumed so much that he 
like ha- has it in his head and under- the, understands what he's doing. But yeah, the one he's never been able to get away from is the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's an avowed fan of spaghetti westerns more than anything, and I think that movie alone is like a blueprint for him in terms of tone that he's always going for. Um, he he doesn't have any movies with real heroes. Like his heroes are all very gray. All of them are willing to commit atrocities and acts of violence in pursuit of whatever their goal is. Um, they're always darkly, darkly funny, but they are very funny. But they know when to get serious with crazy shit like this one, which just has the, the brutal torture and eventual murder of a policeman. Um, yeah, so you find you find yourself rooting for people in the movies, and then they do something, and you go, oh, um, I guess I'm still rooting for them, but I'm not sure. So, yeah, that is definitely part of his style as well. He makes you both root for people, but then also, like, something happens, and you're like, well, well then. Yeah, yeah. This this one, uh, this movie in particular is, is so much more humble than the rest of his. Like, his, uh, his confidence is there, but it's not full-blown. So I think for the rest of his filmography, he was doing whatever he wanted, um, both in terms of writing and directing, whereas this one is so much more focused. Uh, It feels more theatrical, more play-like than cinematic in a lot of ways. Yes. Um, Just by the nature of the majority of the movie being in one location, where there are a lot of flashbacks put in of some of the gangsters, like what they were doing before, um, or the one gangster is a cop in disguise. and so there's some stuff of like how he prepped to go undercover. Um, it does feel like though a lot of scenes they're just like enter stage right, <laughs> and then the scene like happens. Yeah, yeah. So that's even though there there are flourishes of directorial brilliance. So that would be like some of the action scenes that are cut in as flashbacks around the actual heist. Uh, some of those are really good. Um, just in terms of like some kind of frenetic energy. Um, the scenes with Michael Madsen's character, uh, Mr. Blonde, who's just the psychopath who torches the man and cuts off his ear and prepare, prepares to light him on fire. Um, all that stuff's great, but I do think a lot of the general construction of the movie from a directorial standpoint is amateurish. And that's yes. why it feels kind of like a play. Yes. Um, and this is not this is a an issue that'll creep up again um, because in more ways than one, Hateful Eight is very similar to this um, because Hateful Eight spends like two hours with just a bunch of characters locked in a cabin and they don't know who to trust. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll get to that eventually. Uh, I don't I don't know if you have too much else to say about this one. I, I do really still like this movie. Um, it's pretty fun to rewatch, but. That torture scene is is tough. It is really, really well made because it's just disturbing. Yeah, when I say it's a very strong exemplar of juxtaposition, like I wouldn't cite it for my students, but I would cite it mm-hmm. and just tell you like it's stuck in the middle with you and then a man who's, yeah, would rather die basically than have what's happening to him. Uh, yeah. Speaking of which, Pulp Fiction comes next comes out in 1994 this happy friendly family movie yeah uh all-star cast even more of an all-star cast than the previous movie you've got john travolta uma thurman samuel l jackson uh harvey keitel once again um who else we got bruce willis um yeah, just a bunch of big names. Ving Rhames, my God. Uh, yeah, this this movie is probably his most well-known other than, or what he's most known for, other than, uh, like, Inglorious Bastards as of now. But, yeah, this movie is, it has the iconic, um, like, un, unserialized or unsynchronized, synchronatic i can't use words right now the timing is is all uh chopped up 
and like sort of like spooled out differently for you. Um, so yeah, upon rewatches, you kind of start to really understand what the movie is both going for, but then also when things happen in time. Like it, I would say, it's pretty difficult to understand the first time you watch it when things happen. Um, yeah. A movie full of violence. There is a, a pretty aggressive rape scene that happens as well, which then results in subsequent violence. Um, drugs. Uh, it's it's a bit all over the place, but from a directorial standpoint, it is pretty damn incredible. <laughs> a lot a lot of the decisions made from the music um, to the i mean the casting but as as well as like where the characters are supposed to be going and what they're supposed to be doing in each scene plus having john travolta as that character i think is just like (laughs) incredible yeah so that was another thing i forgot to mention is um what tarantino has also become known for is uh either revitalizing certain careers of semi has been actors or using actors who have traditionally been one way as something completely different where he's just decided in his knowledge of a a million movies he's like that one should have gone like that that actor never should have played that he always should have done so for this movie was john travolta his career was in the shitter um he wasn't the first choice to play the character was actually supposed to be michael madsen um and Michael Madsen was busy doing another movie. And so um, Harvey Weinstein, who was the producer of all of Tarantino's movies except for his last one, which we'll get into later. Um, just in case you haven't heard, Harvey Weinstein is a bit of a controversial fellow. Um, but Harvey Weinstein wanted Daniel Day-Lewis to be in the part. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, but... Tarantino was like, no, let's do John Travolta, and it it gave him a Oscar nomination and helped sort of save his career before it nosedived again um, later. But right, just as a side note, I apologize. Uh, Tim Roth also is is uh, in the movie. I, yeah, I seemingly always forget Tim Roth for some reason. Yeah, so basically the movie has a prologue and an epilogue, which involve Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer playing a pair of sort of uh, Bonnie and Clyde thieves who decide to rob a breakfast store. But while they're preparing, like the prologue is basically they're going to rob it and then they start robbing it and it jumps into the movie with just this sweeping musical to, you know, the, the, the song, that the surfing song. The surfer song, yeah. Yeah, um, which is just such a badass opening scene. Um but the epilogue then is you see the resolution of their attempt to rob this place because, uh, unfortunately for them, two of the <laughs> other main characters in the movie, Samuel Jackson and John Travolta, are in the diner. And what you've learned through the movie already is that these guys um, are crazy murdering lunatics. They do uh, not fuck around at Particularly all. Samuel Jackson's portrayal as Jules Winfield, who quotes a certain now infamous Bible verse. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they, they get into that, um, but that's kind of like the prologue and the epilogue. And in between, there are uh, three other stories. So there's... Uh, the Vincent Vega with Marcellus's wife, which is Uma Thurman and John Travolta have a weird night out, which involves a lot of uh, John Travolta doing heroin, and then they go dancing and eat dinner. Lots of conversation about pop culture and nonsense bullshittery. Um, and then uh, she overdoses on heroin and she gets crazy, and then that uh, wraps that up. Um, Gold Watch is the next one, which actually was <laughs> specifically not written by Quentin Tarantino. Um, so Christopher this Walken just bursts into the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, this movie won the the Oscar for um, best writing, best original screenplay. Um, but Tarantino did not win it alone because he did not write it alone. 
Um, one of his best friends named Roger Avery wrote it with him. And from everything I can tell researching the movie, I believe Roger Avery specifically wrote The Gold Watch, um, which is a story about uh, Bruce Willis plays a fighter who is told by Ving Rhames to throw a boxing match. And instead, he decides to kill the other guy bet against that other guy in a fixed match, win big, and then leave L.A. But as he's trying to leave L.A., he literally, his his girlfriend forgets his gold watch, which we learn is important because there's a whole flashback scene, like you said, where Christopher Walken explains in excruciating detail about a generational line of men putting the watch in their asshole in prisoner of war camps. And so this asshole watch is critically important to Bruce Willis. So he has to go home knowing his home is going to be watched or guarded by gangsters to achieve, you know, retrieve the watch. Um, So he gets the watch. Unfortunately, the the home is being guarded by uh, (laughs) John Travolta, who he kills, even though we've already like that's where the the chronology of the movie starts to like mess with you the first time you've seen it because he's still kind of alive in the movie and he'll be alive again he's alive Um, at the end of the movie which is not the end of the story but the end of the movie yeah because the gold watch is chronologically the end of the movie well Um, but then bruce willis leaves and runs into ving rames on the street who just has like a box of donuts (laughs) uh they get into like a gunfight bruce willis crashes his car they eventually end up in a pawn shop, which turns out to be a uh, gay rape dungeon run by Confederates who kidnap the two and then uh, sodomize Ving Rhames while Bruce Willis escapes. And Bruce Willis, it's just one of the... It's a perfect Tarantino-ism where he's yes. about to leave the store and you hear the horrifying thing is happening to Ving Rhames in the basement while Bruce Willis's hand is on the door and there's a Confederate flag in the background and Bruce Willis's character is like, nah, I got, I got to save him from this fate. Even my worst enemy who wants to kill me is not, should not be subjected to this. And, and then so he's get... looking up like through the pawn shop, like contemplating, like, should he bring like a, a lead pipe down? Should he look for a gun? And then he just spies a katana and just goes, yeah. That's that's the thing I'm going to use. So he grabs a katana and goes into the basement. Mm-hmm. And murders the one hillbilly and then the other one, unfortunately, uh, is tortured and murdered off screen by by Ving Rhames. What is Ving Rhames uh, quote again? <laughs> he he uh, Bruce Willis is like, you OK or something like that. I'm going to. Yeah, I'm pretty fucking far from OK. Yeah. And then he's like, all right. And he's like, <laughs> he's like standing there and we cool. And he's like, uh, I got some, what does he say? Some hard or some, some pipe toting yeah. guys. It's, I'm going to come a... back here with a bunch of hard pipe hitting friends. And we're going to yeah. go. I ain't done with you by a damn sight. I'm going to get medieval on your ass. Yeah. So yeah. we cool. We cool. He's he's like, yeah, you lost your L.A. privileges. And he's like, all right. He's like, as for this, this stays between you, me and Mr. Soon to be leaving the rest of his antagonizingly short ass life in pain or, you know, something (laughs) to that effect. (laughs) Meanwhile, the guy's on the ground screaming in pain because Ving Rhames just shot him in the balls. Um, So, yeah, that that scene is just perfectly encapsulates Tarantino's ability to manipulate the audience with tone, tension, and extremeness. Um, but that's that's an idea that this movie plays with a lot is like vengeance and biblical vengeance. And this scene, like you want them to kill, like what's easier to hate than rapist Confederates? Exactly. exactly. What what is more glorious than murdering them with a katana? And then just that that idea of like, yeah, he's going to torture that. Like, it's it's extreme, but uh, it, it gets the point across. Um, yeah, this the, as you said, this is the, the most Tarantino probably that we will come across. Um, 
some people would say this is him at his best. Some people would say this is not for me. This is him at his worst, which I've heard from both people. Uh, as you said, though, like he completely brings you in and is like, yeah, kill those those racist rapists like they got to go. They need to go now. Get get rid of them. So, yeah. Yeah. It, it's definitely one of my favorite movies uh, of all time. I, I think in terms of the the realization of these characters and the dialogue and the story and the structure of the story, it's just masterwork. Um, there's some rust to the direction. Um, I would compare it very similarly to what I said about Christopher Nolan's Memento. Um I just think this is even more well-written and more well-realized than Memento, but it still has some slight oddities to the direction. Um, I think a lot of them come from Tarantino getting over-ambitious or over-exuberant at times, and so there's stuff that just feels... um, Like, there's so many iconic scenes in the movie that the ones that are a little less memorable feel either cheap and cheesy or just out of place, like they could have been cut. Yeah. Um, self, The self-insert into the movie where he says the N-word repeatedly is also... Um, I Personally, I love it because it shows a very specific type of humor that Tarantino's going for, and I don't... I don't think Tarantino is racist, but there is absolutely a conversation to be had that this may just be a racist film. Um, right. Because it, the scene and him doing that is rather inexplicable. It could, it, it doesn't need to be there at all. It's pure, it, it's hilarious. Like having the director of the movie appear just put <laughs> in the story, just to, just for the shit of saying the N word. Like that's all the reason he's there. Anybody could have played there's, it. There's no, yeah, there's zero reason why he's in there. Just a, a guy who's providing them coffee and a place for them to switch out their car. He's also uh, not good at acting. Like, no. he shouldn't be in the movie. He's not good at No, but it's also even funnier because when he's delivering the lines, you almost backtrack from the characters who are saying the lines that he wrote specifically, and you go, wait, this is the fucking dude... Who's coming up with all this bullshit? <laughs> and all of a sudden he's on screen chugging coffee just saying the N-word. And you're like, whoa, bud, buddy, what's what's going on here? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And, and, then, uh, and then Mr. Wolf shows up. Right. Oh, you bring the wolf? That's shit. That's all you had to say. Yeah, this if it's not obvious, I've got uh this this uh Sam Jackson <laughs> from from the Hateful Eight is my background here. Um he steals the the movie completely. He is uh by far the the most iconic of it and would go on to be um Tarantino's best collaborator over the years just he... in terms of roles of just the sharpest character, like the character who always knows what's happening seemingly the best um the one who's able to outwit others outshoot others um and yeah profanity laden uh experiences but he is uh, infinitely requotable in this in this role in particular both from the writing that was provided to him and his delivery is uh, unparalleled yeah when he gets those big eyes Right, furious anger. Do I look like a bitch? <laughs> is it that, or does he say, does he look does like he a bitch? Does he look like a yeah. Does he look oh, yeah, like that's... a bitch? Yeah, so the, this movie is very endlessly quotable. I can understand people not liking it if you have something against profanity, if you have something against violence. Obviously, the, right. the raping is a lot. I'm sure that's not... That, that can turn a lot of people off. Um, we'll still get into the Weinstein stuff because it's all related uh, in some way to the fact that this is, again, mm-hmm. this is a Miramax film. Uh, um, yeah, executive produced by Harvey Weinstein. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that about covers uh, Pulp Fiction. 
definitely, to figure definitely. out. Ready to move on? Yeah, I've seen it like probably six, five or six times, and I'll probably continue watching it every few years. It's enjoyable. It's it's a good late night movie. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, the it's next just hilarious, crazy. Next is Jackie Brown, 1997. Mm-hmm. So we have Pam Greer, uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Robert Forster, um, Robert De Niro mm-hmm. as well. Michael Keaton, Bridget Fonda. Right, Michael Keaton. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Wow. This one I, I have seen, but I'm, like, far less familiar with. I think I've only seen it once or twice. Gotcha. Shout out to yeah. Joe Canner for turning me on to this movie, actually, because I had never heard of it in college, and he was like, no, 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 we got to watch this. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so if uh, if Reservoir Dogs is, like, Tarantino's take on the heist uh, a heist film, where he removes the heist, but you still get all the juicy bits of a heist film, so, like, the team being assembled, uh, switch-ups, backstabbing, shootouts... Um, I would say Pulp Fiction is sort of Tarantino's own genre where, like, time is irrelevant and space is traversed in a very strange way. Um, but all the characters' paths and stories intersect. Like, now that's very common because that structure of Pulp Fiction has been tried endlessly to lesser effect. Um... But just in terms of genre, this this movie is like a black exploitation movie, um, or at least a black exploitation crime thriller. So it has a lot of elements of a of a subgenre that is far less popular, uh, and I kind of see that as one of the main reasons why this is not his most popular movie. Like it's I think one of his least popular in terms of like a large following that it still has today. It definitely um, is. It's a little oddly paced too. Um, for Tarantino, it's one of his more subtle movies. Um, like it's a, it's kind of like a hangout movie. Like there's just a lot of parts where people are just sort of hanging out together. Like people are drinking, chilling. Um, but it's done in his way where they're all killers or, uh, drug smugglers or cops. Yeah. Uh, I, I also wanted to comment and say that he I really appreciate the names of the characters in the movies. Like from the last movie, like Jules, uh, Vincent Jules Vega, Winfield. Vincent Vega, Honey Bunny, Mr. Wolf, Honey Bunny, Marcellus, Marcellus Wallace. Then you, then in this movie, Butch. you have Max Cherry, you have Jackie Brown, Mark Dargis, Louis Gara. Like Ordell Robbie, that's Samuel Jackson's name. Ordell Robbie. Yeah, like they're 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 all they're both ridiculous names, but also they match L.A. Like they match that sort of like who you would run into in L.A. and just be like Max Cherry. That can't be a person. You're like, oh nope, there's just Bob Cherry. Yep, Bob Cherry would like Detective that, Mark Dargis. That yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Beaumont Livingston. This movie also, now that I think about it, it reminds me a lot of Inherent Vice in some ways. Possibly because of the location, but also, like, there are a number of scenes of people hanging out. There's, like, marijuana, people drinking, and then all of a sudden just weird stuff happens between them. Or, like, it, like... And we've talked about this before, where you end up in a place and you're like, why are we here? What are these people doing and why are they talking to each other? Why is this in the movie? And then eventually it does make sense. Or make it might make more sense if you watch it again. But yeah, I, I like what you said about this as it being one of his more subtle, if not the subtlest movie. I would definitely say it's his subtlest movie. Which is probably why it's not as popular as it is. Well, the it helps that the... Like, Samuel Jackson's character is still quite over the top at times, but he's less bombastic um, as the villain in this movie. 
And the same is true of Robert De Niro's character, who's also a villain. Um, they're both more muted. They have a sort of mundaneness to them. Mm. Um, at least Robert De Niro's character does. Uh, Samuel Jackson's character is once again smart. Like, he's supposed to kind of be one of the smarter characters in the movie. Um, and in in being that way, he does ultimately get, uh, you know, outsmarted. But um, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say. He, he's less of a larger than life character. Like the stuff he's doing is uh, relative to some of the villains that will come or, uh, you know, the portrayal of uh, Marcellus Wallace in Pulp Fiction, which is just like a gangster that is shadowy and unreal who then becomes real but uh yeah we didn't mention the uh the iconic um shot behind the car of them opening the trunk or uh, or the shot of opening the briefcase and you don't see what's in it but there's a light on the character's face and they kind of get like a little gleam in their eye yeah yeah so tarantino played around with the uh the MacGuffin and had a MacGuffin that is never stated what it is. Um, so it could just be a suitcase full of money or diamonds. Jules Winfield says it's his boss's dirty laundry. Um, the most fun theories I've read are either meta-narrative theories, where it's like the box contains the plot, and that's why the plot is all over the place, because the box is moving around weirdly. Um, or the other theory is that it contains Marcellus Wallace's soul and he needs it back. And that's why he's vulnerable because he's actually like some kind of super powered entity that, uh, is like a demon. <laughs> that one's way more out there. Uh, and there's no evidence for it. It, it is just diamonds. Like right, that is just right. what's in the case. Or but, gold bars. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but anybody that, uh, the whole point of it was like, why answer this mystery? This is one of those parts of a movie that doesn't need to be answered. Mm -hmm. um, and in talking with other people, they might have a different idea of what was actually in the thing. So, you know, give some subjectivity to a movie. But yeah, back to uh, Jackie Brown. So this one, um, in terms of revitalizing re people's careers... Um, this is a big one for Pam Greer, who had completely disappeared. Um, she grew famous from being in black exploitation films in the seventies, like uh, Kofi and Foxy Brown. And Tarantino loves black exploitation, obviously. Um, and so he always thought she was underutilized, misutilized, and then disappeared from Hollywood. So he threw her in. Um. And it once again helped. Uh, I think she was nominated. No, Robert Forster was nominated for an Oscar. Um, so it helped revitalize his career as well. Um, but it did make Pam Greer slightly relevant again. Um, but yeah, what, what do you think of this one? Because I too have only seen this once. Um, or twice. But I never really wanted to see it again. Um, I'll probably watch it again with Anna because she hasn't seen it. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a good. Sorry, it's a good uh, yeah, crime thriller. It's an it's an enjoyable movie. It it seems to be missing. I don't know if it's a punch or something. Like, it has some of his, like, signature stuff in it, and I don't necessarily think it needs to be more Tarantino, but it, it feels like it's missing, like, one or two kind of punches. But maybe that's the beauty of the movie is in its subtlety. <clears throat> yeah. There are some, there are, like, two scenes that I remember kind of sneaking, it's sneaking up on you, which is which is good and cool to watch. No, I don't, 
I don't really have too much more to say about it other than like if you like Tarantino and you haven't seen this, I would definitely recommend watching it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's still fun and satisfying. Um, I like it more than some of the other ones, which is actually like a pretty hot take, which like his next movie, Kill Bill Volume 1, but I also haven't seen Volume 2, so take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, you watched you watched half a movie and we're not a fan, which exactly my opinion uh, doesn't matter on the subject because I'm only half informed. <clears throat> yeah, so this is uh, I mean it's it's counting it as one movie is a lot because part one is like an hour fifty minutes and part two is like two hours twenty minutes. So together it's uh, you know, one very long movie that doesn't need to be that long. Um, it yeah, the plot is again non-linear and all over the place. There's flashbacks. There's crazy, uh, yeah, all kinds of shit. But basically, the whole point is that Uma Thurman plays an unnamed protagonist who is on a warpath to kill her ex-boyfriend slash husband Bill. Hence the name, Kill Bill. Yeah, the first one came out in 2003, the second came out in 2004. Did they shoot them just, like, all together, I assume? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to kick you off the, the path of the story. No, so it was always meant to be one, like, three, three-and-a-half-hour movie, and uh, Harvey Weinstein was like, this should be two movies. Um, and uh, oddly enough, Weinstein, like, the thing Weinstein was known for outside of the horrible things he did um, was he was known for being able to pressure directors to take all of his advice. And Quentin Tarantino is the one person he worked with who never seemed to back down from arguments with him. So Tarantino would always make the movie he wanted to make. Um, Ironically enough, on this one issue, Weinstein was right. And uh, Tarantino listened to him and we got two movies. Um, Each each has its strengths, I think, and its weaknesses. like, Volume 1's ending is very strong, um, but it kind of meanders a bit to get there. Um, it's a revenge movie. Like, this lady's warpath is killing a bunch of people who tried to kill her at her own wedding when she was pregnant. Um, so she has good reason for vengeance. So it starts with, uh, like, she goes after, what are they, the Deadly Vipers... Yes. Um, yeah, for the most part, I'm I'm not a big fan of part one. Um, I think the ending is excellent. It's some of the best like martial arts sword fighting stuff ever put to the screen. Um, how they get there is a bit all over the place. Um, Yeah, I, I don't know how you want to proceed forward. Um, well, I can't comment on the seen, second part, yeah. Um, yeah, part two, I think, is significantly better. It goes, it has more flashbacks of, like, the traditional, like, Uma Therma training to become a master martial artist and swordsman. Um, there's all this funny stuff where she learns how to do, like, a, a death punch um, where, you know, she can punch someone from a foot away and it kills them instantly. Um, the second one has more... There's, like, car crashes and she's buried alive and there's fights with snakes and a bunch of betrayal. I don't really like the side plots or the subplots very much. Um, I really like the ending of the second movie, too. You'll never guess what happens. Hmm. I can only imagine. 
What's the name? Oh, Kill Bill was the name. Lick of the film. Bill. She licks right. him. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess we'll we'll move on past this one. <laughs> um, this this is one of those ones where it highlights the best and worst parts of Tarantino as a director. Um, Kill Bill or his these movie, movie? Kill Bill. Kill Bill. Okay. Um, I mean these these were like hugely successful films and they're still beloved today. Um, their ability to replicate samurai movies, um, so many elements still of spaghetti westerns. There's still some elements of black exploitation films. Um, that stuff comes through really well, but it's Tarantino's overuse of long dialogue scenes and more contrived action-based set pieces, um, like stuff on motorcycles and cars. Um, is not that interesting to me. Like I said, I really like the long sword fight where she fights 88 people, yes. and I like the fight she has at the end of the second movie with Bill. Um, and the fight she has with Lucy Liu then is also uh, um, excellent. Um, but yeah, outside of that, I don't know. There's it, it, He could have used some help writing this thing and certainly editing it down. Yeah, uh, like I said, I I actually like uh, Jackie Brown more than this, but I've only seen half of it, so it doesn't really matter. So, um, moving on to Death Proof, which came out in 2007. As long as you were finished with Kill Bill. Yeah, I'm I, not not the biggest fan of it. It does what it's supposed to do well enough, but yeah. 2007. Um, this one is a double part of a double feature, right? Mm-hmm. Grindhouse double feature. <clears throat> Directed by Rodriguez's uh, superior film, Planet Terror. Yeah. Yeah. So this and that other one make up Grindhouse. Yes. So it was Got released it. as a double feature, uh, meant to be kind of like a midnight movie where. Uh, crazy exploitation stuff would play at grindhouse cinemas <clears throat> specifically sexploitation in in the cases of both of these movies mm-hmm. yeah and we'll get into uh yeah well that's uh, harvey weinstein again is, is rearing his ugly head here getting harder not to talk about true true yeah i didn't really think about that i'm pretty sure i saw death proof but i was um younger and was definitely not thinking about it from like a film standpoint um before we get into this actually um i'm just gonna take a a tea break so we will be right back let's pause here yeah i uh stopped the recording oh cool you were recording the video right what you you were recording video right yeah 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 on skype okay cool did you stop that one what one the video no i stopped